Hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, where sweltering in heat, we attempt to use feminism to figure out what the hell is going on right now. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. Uh, And yeah, gotta talk about this heat. It's really hot in here. Oh my God. It's really hot. Yeah, I feel for you, Southern California, and uh, I'm very glad I don't live there right now, but it feels like Southern California in San Francisco right now. Yeah, and for those of you who are not on the West Coast, we're dealing with some pretty serious wildfires. Some of them started... Some of them caused by the patriarchy. By the patriarchy. (laughs) Turns out gender reveal parties. Oh my God, this story. Why does the sex gender system involve so many explosions? I guess I hadn't sort of seen that coming. So just to be explicit what we're referring to, there's a large fire in San Bernardino County that has consumed thousands of acres that was started by some kind of pyrotechnic display gone wrong at a gender reveal party. And like, my problems with this are just legion. Why are people having parties right now? Why are people gathering at all in a pandemic, let's say? Why are gender reveal parties a thing? Why are they a thing? Why are gender reveal parties? They are a capitalist thing, I think. I mean, I really think they're just another kind of present and attention grab. And there is a measure, a very small measure of sympathy I have for that, because I think that sometimes... Mm, the disproportionate attention hoarding that women tend to engage in around ceremonies like weddings and babies is reflective Uh, of how women are otherwise neglected and ignored in our culture. Sure. So I have some sympathy for those motivations, but I still think it's really fucking stupid to have a gender reveal party. And to set fire to shit while you're doing it. And to set fires to shit while you're doing it. It's crazy. We have not even put out the fires from three weeks ago and people are having pyrotechnics for penises and vaginas. I don't know what sex the baby has been assigned pre-birth yeah i mean also it's a gender reveal party not a sex reveal party so that's the weirdest part there's nothing to reveal yeah i don't think they know that set a fire while you're in college that could be your gender reveal party (laughs) that's not the worst idea anyway so that's our lesson for today still think gender is cool kids (laughs) think again wait till you see what happens now more people being displaced from their homes during a time of economic recession and pandemic. Friends don't let friends reveal gender, I think is what we're learning here. Friends don't let friends reveal gender. Yes, PSA, if you really want to piss off some feminists in Northern California, burn down half the state with your gender reveal party. Anyway, that's just what's going on right now, Adrian. So uh, I think we're here to talk about TERFs, actually. We're here to talk about TERFs and an event that we did remotely at Clayman. Clayman in the cloud. Clayman in the cloud about what we call the TERF industrial complex, which, you know, was kind of some fire starting of our own. I mean, that event blew up. On the Twitters. Crabgrass of Twitter. Well, for people who aren't as like, you know, perpetually on Twitter as you and I are, give us a brief gloss of like what happened when we started trying to promote this event on Twitter. Well, so people who identify with that label and often don't like that label. The label TERF, trans-exclusive radical feminist, which means feminists who aren't cool with trans people in very broad strokes. Yeah, Yeah. we'll talk about that in a second. But they came out of the woodwork and kind of insulted our guests who were largely trans people, demanded to sort of be included in this debate. Now, that was kind of not what the debate was about. And so we resisted calls of that. But it is a little bit awkward. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. I acknowledge that in introducing the event that like, at Clayman, we're not in the habit of talking about feminists without talking also to them. Right. But in this case, we were really interested in the way the position of these figures 
Some of them are academic philosophers, some of them are media people, some of them are J.K. Rowling, uh, right? <laughs> How these have been sort of used in broader culture wars. And I have to say, I'll defend the idea that for that, talking to them is actually not that interesting or not that necessary, because it is ultimately about the fellow travelers they've sort of picked up along the way. Many of them, frankly, are quite creepy. And I don't doubt that there are some people with fairly noble intentions who identify with that position. But I think that they have to ask themselves, like, how come my position is so so amenable to, mm -hmm. you know, the alt-right, to these online trolls, to these people who really, you'd have to look very hard to find any kind of feminism in their position. Mm -hmm. So like for people, again, who maybe aren't as online or aren't as buried in the dictionary of new gender words as we are, tell me a little bit more about like sort of who TERFs are and how they exist on the internet. Yeah. So I have to say, I had to do some research on this myself, because as you say, like these are people that you often find on the internet. And the label itself is an internet creation, I believe. Mm -hmm. The term is not old. It's about 12, 13 years old. And my sense is it came out of certain blogs as a description of a position, often of other people. Mm -hmm. It's not a label that's usually self-applied. And then I think it must have become big with Tumblr. Mm. Anecdotally, a lot of my students who really are worried about this position and often feel themselves beleaguered by it or feel themselves needing to defend themselves against it, sort of came up in the age of Tumblr. And I think that's a mm -hmm. lot of where this sort of came from. But the position itself, of course, is much, much older, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that there is a kind of feminism that is under threat from basically the very existence of trans people and that there are these women-only spaces that require defense against trans women or non-binary people is one that I associate with the 1970s, mm -hmm. right? I think that there's a sort of, if I could just interject here from my own understanding of where TERFs are coming from in the popular imagination, I think that one aspect of it seems to be a kind of fear of the penis, you know, like I'm not at all endorsing this position. I'm merely summarizing it for the purposes of this discussion. Like I'm thinking of the transparent episode, Man on the Land, you know, where one character tried to bring her parent who is a trans woman to an all women's folk retreat. And like, it was taken very seriously that there were not to be any people who had penises who belonged to this retreat right. and that sort of like biological essentialism is what we would call it sort of in the academy. It seems to be a key aspect of this sort of turf ideology. Absolutely. And I haven't seen that episode, I must confess, but it, that is... Really? No, no. Adrian. No, I'm, I'm a bad LGBT person, but... Uh, in so many ways. But this is indeed where it started, right? Like Classic Flashpoint was like the Michigan Women's Festival, which I'm guessing this is based on. I believe it was, yes. Infamously didn't allow trans women to attend. But there's also that book, Transsexual Empire by Janice Raymond, that's I think 1979. Mm. which essentially said that, you know, trans women are not, nor can they ever be really women, mm -hmm. right? And that came also out of like, Raymond got upset about a feminist music label that allowed trans people in. Mm. Like, that's part of what we got so interested in mm -hmm. with this mm -hmm. conversation, that like the trip from a Michigan women's festival and a record label that you and I have never heard mm -hmm. of, to suddenly like being kind of a big position online, being endorsed by important conservative commentators and being championed as these kind of free speech paragons by that Harper's letter on, quote, cancel culture mm -hmm. earlier this summer, it's like a really mm -hmm. interesting one, right? Like this position has sort of slowly percolated into the very center of certain debates and gender critical feminists, as they call themselves, are sort of descendants of these people who really were acting in these very 
exclusive radical feminist spaces. Mm -hmm. But of course, they're doing it on places like Twitter, right? You know, so these were people in the 70s who felt that the presence of trans women in feminist spaces threatened those spaces or threatened cis women in those spaces or threatened sort of the feminist bona fides of those spaces, which, you know, if you have a record label and you want to be a essentialist about who gets to record on it, I'm like, yeah, I guess you have a little clubhouse and you don't want certain people for a member. I mean, I don't like that, but whatever. Right. But like, it's really weird when your defense is of like, you can't share the bathroom stall next to me. Like, wow, that's that's the hill. And bathrooms have become such an epicenter of this debate too. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to contextualize this. And I fear giving too much airtime to the opinion yeah. of people who don't consider our friends and allies to be human or women. But I think it's also important to contextualize. I'm thinking about Grace Lavery and, you know, what an incredible scholar she is and also how she yeah. connects to the feminist present universe, if I might call it that, which is Grace Lavery is married to Danny Lavery, who was a guest of ours earlier in the season. And Grace and right. Danny were very fiercely united in the effort to bring some accountability to Menlo Church after the revelation that there was a pedophile working with children there. Right. And over the course of this entire summer, it has been absolutely incredible to witness both Grace and Danny's persistence in pursuing justice in that way, and to witness simultaneously how much transphobic harassment both of them endured while they were doing it. Right. And Grace talks about this a little bit in her comments on the panel. But I just think that that's an important broader context to bring in of how much trans people constantly have to argue for their right to simply exist in public spaces or at all. Yes. And Grace describes in the panel how literally she cannot enter a public bathroom without having some sort of debate about her humanity. So I just I think that's really important broader right. context to bring into these academic discussions that there's real human cost and real human suffering yeah. involved in constantly having to litigate who you are to anyone who feels entitled to say something about. It. And I should say that that's why we brought together the panel that we did. We of wanted course. to say yeah. the basic identity and the basic presence of trans people in this space is not up for debate. Debate is about transphobia and the uses to which it is put politically. That's the interesting question to us. Having our panelists justify their existence is not. That's not the business we're in. And frankly, yeah. if your mm -hmm. feminism consists of denying the existence and identity of certain people... I think you should take a long and hard look at yourself. Yeah. If people are comparing you to people who are intolerant, <laughs> maybe you should ask why. Another reason why I'm really glad you brought this panel together is I think as feminists in the academy, it's really, really important to take a responsible accounting of how even though LGBTQ people are constantly lumped together in that label, that label has not always been like a coalescent and peaceful whole. And we cannot Absolutely make not, it yeah. so until we reckon with transphobia. Absolutely. And I think one thing for context that I should say is that while we have these conversations on Zoom, there's a Q&A feature that's running continuously. So in the recording, when you hear me refer to the Q&A, that's not a piece of the audio that you're not hearing. It's actually a little tab that all three speakers and I see. And one question that kept coming up in that is, why are you calling this an industrial complex? And like, partly it was a joke, right? Like we thought it'd be funny to talk about the turf industrial complex, but it's also not. And actually it became, I think, less of a joke the more we went along. Because on the one hand, right, we're looking at these fairly marginal debates on Twitter, on Tumblr, and then like within academia, right? Like a lot of these people who take gender critical positions are sort of philosophers in British academia. And it's like, wow, gee, you know, these aren't the white hot loci of power, right? <laughs> and a lot of what we got was like, well, look, you may 
disagree with this position or you might find it upsetting. It might indeed be kind of inhumane, but come on, this is not that powerful. But as our three panelists kept making clear is very quickly, right, in terms of fellow travelers, very quickly that position is in league with super powerful actors within society that do really negatively impact the lives of trans people, law enforcement, the prison system, the medical establishment, mm -hmm. housing, housing, labor, medicine. Yeah. I actually felt better about the title leaving the conversation than I did going into it mm. because I'm like, yeah, that's the thing. Like you and your buddies might frame yourself as like, oh, we're just like shitposting online and having fun. But like in the end, like the ramifications, because there are people out there who agree with you on this stuff, who run mm -hmm. our prisons, who run our police, who inform our medical professionals, like this is actually really hurting actual trans people's lives. And that's what to me really justifies this label of the industrial complex, however much we kind of mm -hmm. picked it to be a little provocative. Oh, you. And so I think that if people are upset, if you happen to be one of the people who is upset by this phrase of the turf industrial complex, I do think it's worth reflecting on whether you really are as powerless as you imagine yourself to be, or whether you're not in that particular instance, maybe not in other parts of your life, maybe not in other parts of your feminism or whatever, but whether you're not in that moment in league with some of the most brutal and most powerful aspects of American social repression, mm -hmm. and you're kind of knowingly calling them down on these people who have been shown to be incredibly vulnerable to this mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. historically, right? And at that point, I kind of think, just ask yourself what you're doing. You know, mm -hmm. should we do a little plug for our final claim and conversation coming out in a couple weeks? Yes. So the next one is going to be called Departmentalize Now. This is a collaboration with our colleagues at Stanford's program of African and African-American studies. And you heard that right. It's a program, hence the Departmentalize Now. We're kind of playing off the departmentalization push for ethnic studies at San Francisco State back in, I believe, 1968. And that tells you something, right? It's been it's been a long ass time. It's been a minute. Yeah. This discussion Holy shit. Underway. Right. And yes. like and so yeah. that's our question. How the fuck is this still a thing? And I think it's going to be really exciting. And I hope you all tune in for that. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoy this fiery panel on the turf industrial complex. Please join us for Departmentalize Now. For more info about our events, please stay tuned at gender.stanford.edu. Adrian, will you just give a quick introduction of the panelists we'll be hearing from on the turf industrial complex? Yes. So in order of you hearing them, I believe, it's Jules Gill-Peterson, who is an associate professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and the author of a really interesting book that we talk about very late in the conversation, Histories of the Transgender Child, which is really about, you know, how this figure of the transgender child has become this flashpoint and everyone assumes it's so new. And Jules says, not so fast. This is actually a long conversation and we kind of keep on conveniently forgetting that it is. The second person I believe you're going to hear is Marquis Bay, who is an assistant professor of African-American studies at Northwestern um, and the author of Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism, which is truly a remarkable book and I really hope you check it out. And finally, you're going to hear Grace Lavery, who's an associate professor of English at the University of California at Berkeley. Her most recent book is Quaint, Exquisite, Victorian Aesthetics and the Idea of Japan. I love that title so much. I always have. I think it's time to take it to this panel and turn our fans back on. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
thank you so much all for being here and thank you for talking with us about this topic. When we advertised this event online, the response was pretty explosive, to be honest. And I should emphasize again that we picked the title, not any of our panelists. So we're not going to ask any of you to justify it. But can you explain to our audience what sort of a figure a TERF is? Where do you encounter a TERF as a trans person in the world? Yeah, the TERF as a figure, I think, is a really interesting place to start insofar as I think that that phrase carries a lot of different meaning and different forms of encounter. You know, I've been writing lately about the TERF that lives inside my head, which speaks to the bodily life that transphobia has in reducing trans people's life chances overall and our well-being and our equity. But certainly it seems like TERFs have risen as political figures, right, as these sort of unlikely bedfellows, as these sort of referenced as part of a kind of transnational network of political actors across the spectrum, right and left, and often mobilize their own kinds of figures to do their work. So, you know, one of the ones I've been the most interested in is the figure of the mom, the, the not coincidentally often white mom who's terrified of their child becoming suddenly with no explanation trans as if that were a thing. But yeah, I think there are a sort of wide array of figurations that travel under turf. There are historical ones like in the 70s. So I think as trans folks, we encounter those all the time kind of every single day if you want to count the one buried into your brain. And so, it, you know, ironically, I'd say at a time during this pandemic when for myself as like a brown trans woman, I've been kind of happy to be holed up at home. It's been a measurable harm reduction in my life. I actually feel as though I'm nevertheless encountering turfs more than ever. And some of that might have to do with the way that the internet feels like the only public sphere at the moment at least for those of us lucky enough to be sequestered at home with internet access. But yeah, I think there's a sort of proliferation going on right now. I can take it up next, if that's cool with y'all. When I, when I think about this question, I initially wanted to say that the turf is this kind of nuisance, a kind of perverse gadfly annoying the public with their trans antagonism. But I think I fear that for me to say this would be to kind of evacuate TERFs of their impact and their influence. And this is not to say that TERFs are the end all and be all of the problems and opponents that trans folks have to deal with, which I deeply disagree with, that there are a whole host of other vectors of society and societal actors who prove much more combative and harmful for trans people, namely the medical industrial complex, to use the language of this talk, the police and law enforcement and even more like abstracted notions such as the pervasiveness and the deep structuring logic of the gender binary. But still, for me, the turf as a figure seems important because the, the turf serves, in my estimation, as this affirmation to the larger public of the purported like golden years of feminist activism, which contrasts with the supposed too farness of contemporary radical trans insurrectionary thinking and activism. So it seems to me that TERFs serve to undermine contemporary radical trans feminist work with their kind of second wave platitudes by making recourse to worn notions of biological determinism and moral imperatives that are actually thinly veiled recapitulations of misogyny and the deprivation of privacy too and self-determination while also granting larger society the ability to kind of take on a titular feminism and the presumed progressiveness that it entails by way of an agreement with a certain feminist position that has been historically marginalized. It's a strange kind of deployment of a type of feminism as feminism as such, 
couched in notions of reality or naturalness, which in the end align deeply with cis male supremacy. For me, the, the figure of the turf, I guess, in short, gains whatever validity it is said to have by conforming to patriarchy and cis normativity while possessing kind of a less hostile name, to put it simply. Mm. Well, I, I thought that I would, um, would sound sensible by going third, but actually what I have to say is far less striking and persuasive, I think, either than Jules's account of the turf as a kind of figurative psychic reality for queer and trans people. And then also Marquis's understanding of the turf as a gadfly who serves this kind of nostalgic role. And I think that's exactly right. I hadn't quite put it together, but one of the questions that people often ask about the turf industrial complex is why, why does it seem located in Britain? As a British person, you know, I, that's sometimes tricky for me to answer. And the question already was in the Q&A, so I think it's good that you're yeah. bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, I think Marcus has already given a better answer than, than I can, really, which is to say that it's bound up with some notion of a pre-post-structuralist feminist nostalgia when everything made sense, you know, when, when it wasn't like 1984 because it wasn't yet 1984. But here's, here's my theory of the turf industrial complex, because I've been thinking a lot in preparation for this event. You know, why is this group so powerful? And yet, how does it understand itself as so powerless? The people like me, who spend every day out in the world being transgender, being spat at, being confronted physically whenever I go to a public bathroom, whether it's the men's or the women's bathroom, you know, it seems undeniable that this is a powerful ideology, but I'm also very sensitive to the way that, you know, at the center, there's a group of people who really believe themselves to be powerless and really believe themselves to be left behind. I've been really trying to understand that. And I've come up with what I think of as a sort of three-part understanding of the turf industrial complex, in the middle of which is a group called the Gender Critical Feminists, which is a more or less marginal group of feminist thinkers and activists who are very much of the kind that Marquis is describing, very much of a kind of nostalgic, second-wavy form of feminist organizing, feminist ideology, of the kind that was usually left behind by the 1982 Barnard Conference and the emergence of uh, lesbian and gay civil rights movements in the 80s and 90s, but which I think, you know, endures, and whose endurance can be seen in the work of writers and thinkers like Holly Lawton and, and Jane Claire Jones, and then on the other hand, you know, in one direction, you have this other group, which is quite different. And I've called that the anti-woke trolls. And in that group, you have a person like Graham Linehan, who is a sort of former sitcom writer who seems to have in recent years become kind of deranged around trans issues. I try to be very careful of the ableist language I use when describing Graham Linehan especially, and, and I, I apologize for deranged. It's difficult sometimes to describe the extremely intense degree of animus that is thrown at us, but an alt-right troll like Linehan or the anti-woke left in a figure like Andrew Doyle is a prominent British anti-trans activist who has links to the alt-right by being close to Anne Coulter. And then this kind of odd anti-woke left movement that's born around the Revolutionary Communist Party, which is not a communist party, in fact, but a sort of odd cult of personality founded by Bob Avakian, which is remarkably influential online. And also, for what it's worth, remarkably influential in my hometown of Berkeley, where there's a revolutionary bookstore, which all of my colleagues think it's cool to go and speak at, despite the fact that they are not in solidarity with any left party and no left party organizers with their FCOMs. So there's, there's that, right? There's this kind of totally unacceptable trolling alt-right swamp that the gender criticals have made a 
packed with. And that pact, I think, is fractured. And that's why I think this event today is so important and happens at such a timely moment. Because the, the fracturing of that alliance between the alt-right and the gender-critical feminists can be seen in a few different ways. It can be seen by the fact that Graham Linehan has been kicked off Twitter as a result of things he said about me, for what it's worth. It can be seen in the fact that Kathleen Stock, one of the major gender-critical feminist thinkers, has disavowed a large part of the anti-trans movement online because of its obsession with calling trans women pedophiles and making fun of their appearance. And then it can be seen by the closure of the gender-critical subreddit. And in general, I think, you know, when we agreed to do this event, I thought that, you know, nothing was going to change. But I have this sense now that we're at a moment where that relationship between the Graham Linehans of the world and the Kathleen Stocks of the world can no longer quite hold. The third part of the trans-industrial complex, though, is really still in place. And that's what I've called the liberal institutionalists. And the liberal institutionalists are people who probably don't have very much in common with the gender-critical feminists in their view of the world, but who have some sense that free speech is being threatened. And because they have that sense and a desire to protect the liberal organs of state represented, especially by the university, the political party, I think those two especially, but, but others too, they are willing to go along with the gender-critical feminists, not realizing that they're also getting into bed with the alt-right trolls. So in terms of thinking like, what is a turf in 2020? A turf for me is a political money launderer. The turf is the person that makes alt-right troll techniques and politics acceptable to liberals who under no other circumstances would acknowledge their relationship with or their debt to people like Milo Yiannopoulos. But because it's coming from this apparently embattled group of white feminists, that relationship is, is allowed to be sustained and, and, and with a bit of luck, perhaps not for much longer. That's fascinating. And it gets to a really important point, I think. When we chose the word industrial complex to describe turfism in announcing the event, we're obviously being kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, as you're pointing out, these can be relatively marginal voices. These are conversations on Twitter, on subreddits, etc. And certainly a lot of the protagonists we're talking about don't think of themselves as having a ton of power. But as you also point out, this course clearly coincides with a ton of very powerful transphobic currents in society and frequently makes common cause with them, right? So does the power that the figure of the turf wields come from that money laundering function, to use your metaphor from just a second ago? Does it come from the ability to translate something from one segment of society to and for another? I think that there's a way maybe to get at that by thinking more, yeah, about how race figures into all of this and actually yeah. doesn't figure, but materializes institutions and stratifies who gets to live under what circumstances and who's left to die in our societies. Because that to me seems like part of the question of how a figure would have any sort of material purchase. And, you know, the a pandemic has obliterated my memory, so I won't remember who tweeted this, but I saw someone tweet, you know, in the last week, something to the effect of like, well, you know, fighting turfs has kind of always felt to me a little bit like a white trans issue. And, and I was thinking a lot about that because, you know, I was trying to think about what that tweet was attempting to communicate, right? And I think that there's a sort of broader question about what systemic forms of the regulation of human life disproportionately impact trans people, right? And I was thinking about how, you know, I did feel this sort of new form of siloing on social media where I had like this sort of 
trans clout, like thought producing folks largely on Twitter, you know, like really trying to, to engage in some of these, these battles over the constitution of trans people's existence as a matter of free speech. And then like, for me, it's like literally that's Twitter. And then my Instagram is all black trans and trans people of color circulating mutual aid projects, GoFundMes, getting people out of jail, getting people housing. And I was thinking like, I guess I've never seen the word turf there. And, you know, part of the answer is of course that Black trans women and, and brown trans women that don't even register under the imaginary that TERFs operate on, they're not even like worthy enough to be harassed in that way because they're so devalued. But, but, but there's something else that I think is interesting to think about here, right? Which is sort of like, what are the conditions? And this is the industrial complex part for me that wear people out, right? And so, yeah, the medical industrial complex and the prison industrial complex and policing, right? Feel like part and parcel but not in a literal sense, right? The affiliation is not so obviously detectable, but it does sort of seem like on the one hand, there's a sort of rhetorical battle over who is the most humiliated, aggrieved white subject, right? And it's no surprise in my mind that white women step up right, to lead this political movement. It is, at least since the 19th century, the direct province of white women's feminism to pursue white supremacy. That is like the primary project of American, and it seems also English, white feminism in its dominant narrative mode, right, is to pursue the cause of civilization so-called and to think about the regulation and reproduction of the race as white women's sort of duty. And so, of course, those are the same women who now can be terrified at the idea that white children assigned female at birth might turn out not to grow up to be women. But there's a horizontal line to draw, I think, right, to the problem of hypervisibility and the extreme violence and structural neglect that faces most trans people who are poor <laughs> and who are of color and who don't have time to, to be targeted online and who are living under different conditions than the ones that TERFs imagine as reality. But I do think that that would be the connection. Like if there's a sort of industrial complex model here, it would be one that in my most academic mode, I would just call biopolitics, right? You know, it is not, it's not a mistake when white women choose their whiteness over their gender, right? It's actually the purpose of white femininity and white gender to prosecute and manipulate and utilize non-white people's bodies and non-normative bodies as resources for their enrichment. And so the sort of, I mean, one of the things that I think is really sort of eerie, right, is that like, in the case of TERFs focused on children, which is the thing that I have done the most research on, it's extremely painful in, in our organizing and our activism in response to that, that the most effective rhetorical campaign we have is that these policies, right, whether it's some state law banning healthcare for kids or, or everything that has happened in the UK to make it basically impossible for minors to access transition, like that that will lead to their deaths, right? And the specter is always suicide. And the answer to that is, of course, yes, but there's no shaming people for that. Not because TERFs are shameless. I mean, that's something we could say, but because there's no shame in modern nation states in letting massive 
populations of people die. That's the way that we produce value and extract value out of gender and out of race and out of reproductivity. So I think that the sort of industrial complex thing is so deeply enfolded into our own living tissues, whether we go to the doctor or we get pulled over by the cops or we get incarcerated or we lose our job or we get harassed online. And there is a way in which this isn't a sort of totalizing kind of reductionist narrative, but about a system, an interlocking system that actually does what gender is supposed to do, which is make us vulnerable to state power and people acting on behalf of state power, whether or not they understand themselves to be ideologically, they are, you know, having a gender, unfortunately, obligates us inside of a system that is primarily harmful. Well, that was wonderful. So I'm only going to add a little bit to that. If the question is like, what kind of, or what are the ways that TERFs employ power or what kind of power is that? For me, I think the power TERFs have or deploy or subject themselves to comes from their, as I noted before, um, their ability to like, maneuver through normative ways of thinking, which then gives them a little bit of clout and power by virtue of their proximity to things that are sanctioned by cis male supremacy. But while while operating under the guise of a loose, ostensibly progressive feminism. And I think this translates into a power to stall trans feminist insurrection. And that doesn't simply mean, to me at least, that laws preventing trans people from using bathrooms are instituted or or law providing trans people with access to gender affirmative surgeries are taken off the table. It's kind of more than that, even if these things are quite important for trans livability in the here and now. But Ultimately, TERFs seem to have the power to renaturalize and reinstill or to further solidify the stranglehold of the gender binary, which is in and of itself a mode of violence and violation. TERFs then have some power to proliferate violence on a broad scale, proliferate and verify and validate violence on a broad scale. And the things that they advocate for have the power to create and recreate a society that is structured by the violation of non-normative genders. So that is the kind of violence that concerns me. It's less the spectacularized or sensational forms of violence, which to be sure are very important to combat, but that's less my claim. My claim is that there is a conditioning force, a kind of background noise um, and ground that enables those instances of violence to even be fathomable. And that background is what I often set my sights on. And that I think is the power that TERFs have to kind of dip into that background noise to, to cultivate the very ground on which to make their claims. And that then proliferates to do violation and harm to people with non-normative genders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So what makes TERFism an industrial complex then would be the way in which it can slip into a kind of easy alliance with institutions, with the police, with the medical establishment, the carceral system that do make trans lives difficult across society. That makes sense. Can you say more about that, though? You know, I'm so moved by reminders from both Marquess and Jules that in a sense, the whole sideshow of the spectacular forms of cruelty that are exhibited on a daily basis by the turf industrial complex, that in a sense, that is a sideshow and that the real, the real work that is happening under the sign of an industrial complex is the reproduction of patriarchy, is the reproduction of a medical industrial complex, a prison industrial complex that goes to make life impossible and expendable especially for trans people of color. I'm moved by that, especially because I am someone who historically has made the mistake of getting too involved in Twitter bullshit. 
I am moved by my colleagues and my comrades' reminder that there is better and other work to do. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that I think about the questions that are interesting to Turks about, you know, the difference between biological sex and gender. And I sort of think like, well, it's a kind of philosophical or technical question. This doesn't have any impact on my life. I surround myself with people who see me in a way that makes sense to me, that doesn't feel wholly alienating. We recognize there are complexities, but it's not as though any of this is absolutely abominable to think of. And, and, and that makes me think, and I, I'm, I'm moving in a different direction, but to be clear, I think what I'm saying is less important than what Jules and Marcus were saying. One of the things that I think characterizes the turf rhetorical gesture is to attempt to replace political questions, political contradictions with metaphysical contradictions, to attempt to remove or erase questions like, how do we decarcerate? How do we abolish the police state? How do we provide adequate health care? How do we decriminalize sex work? And then much more interested in questions like, well, you know, what if someone had an XXY chromosome, but they had, and it's like, I could care less. The constant attempt to relitigate trans women or women instead of answering questions about decarceration, abolition, um, sex work, access to medical care, access to health care, you know, I refuse to litigate those things now. I don't care whether you think trans women are women, as long as you think trans women are people who are deserving of the same basic civil rights as other people, rights that the gender critical movement with the aid of the alt-right has been undermining and eroding for some years now. So, you know, that's one of the places where I find myself having occasional friendly and sometimes spirited disagreements with other trans people. You know, for me, the important stuff is the boots on the ground, political questions about how do we organize around issues like abolition? How do we organize around issues like decarceration, prison abolition? I am not interested in you telling me you have a strange casuistical construction about a prisoner who decides that they're trans halfway through. It's also fictional. They're interested in these fictional, hypothetical, ethical questions, and I could not care less. My position on prisons is that we abolish them. My position on sex work is that we decriminalize it. And that's what a politics is. A politics doesn't need to litigate the chromosome. So one question that I think we've been circling around for a bit now is, if one were to categorize, is the function and the relationship to the patriarchy that you have all kind of imputed to the figure of the turf actually different from the kind of baseline transphobia that one encounters in you know many, if not most, sectors of society and politics? I think I heard you say yes, but it brings me to the second question that has come up already, but I'd like to hear more about. Is engagement with these gender-critical feminists a kind of distraction from the actual urgent concerns about the everyday lives of trans people? Yeah, I'm just going to put it like that. Do you think it is? Yeah, I was literally talking about this in my undergrad class earlier today, so apologies if I sound professorial right now, but um, it's a problem with the word trans. Like, you know, I'm not sure we know what the word transphobia means. I mean, the phobia words have been, you know, not super useful rhetorically because their literal meaning is so silly, right? Like, ah, you're afraid, right? 
That being said, there could be a sort of phenomenology of disgust through which we think about how violence is enacted. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm sure people are afraid of me and that maybe gives me some delight to imagine. But the word trans, right, itself isn't necessarily fully encompassing. And so the trans and transphobia, I think actually is maybe more of the problem than the phobia. So trans is also in turf. And I think part of the challenge here is that there is a historical specificity to trans misogyny and it over determines in that very like physical sense trans as a word right I mean I'm very curious about like sure lots of people pivotally respond and often trans masculine folks or trans men respond like I don't even think TERFs know that I exist right that there could be a trans man or when they say transgender man they're using that as a slur against trans women right and yeah right I'm actually really surprised and interested and I have this kind of burning suspicion that the gender critical moms, for example, are not actually, like the real human beings they're worried about are trans masculine people. Probably lots of them are non-binary. Um, and, and that's very odd um, because the history of transphobia is very overdetermined by trans misogyny. But I think, and here's the link for me to, to the everyday thing. So I think there is a value here to making clear when something is a product of trans misogyny, because there's a certain impossibility and disposability that so overwrought, right? And it has to do with the feminist question of how do women get enlisted, right, to act against their own interests as a class, right? Why is it, why is it white women's job to police the category woman? Why is it intellectual feminism's job to police the category of woman? And I think that that has to do with the fact that, like, Trans women, you know, if I could be a little dramatic about it, just like don't really exist in the world. Um, we are figurations much more than the TERFs are. And I think one of the biggest challenges I found as someone who, you know, wrote a book and then later started taking estrogen was like I could track in real time what happened to my ability to speak in public. So I appreciate that I'm allowed to do that right now. But there's a way in which like for me, you know, coming into trans womanhood was about coming to realize that I didn't really have a very useful speaking position because trans women's language is rendered in two modes only, either total disrespect, you don't exist, you're not even real, or you're perfect, you're a goddess, everything you say is oracular and truthful. And yes, many trans women are goddesses and oracular and, and have truths to say. But part of what I'm getting at is I think like the non-reality imagined to trans womanhood, right, is a different form than the non-reality imagined by the turf who doesn't know trans men exist, right? If the charge is not that they cannot, philosophically cannot exist, right? The charge is something more perverse in the case of trans misogyny. It's that I can see your chromosomes, which you've never seen, and I know what they are, and I know what that makes you, right? Or what that doesn't make you. Like, you know, as a historian, this is the last thing that I'll say on this, like, I've tried to think a lot about street queens and trans women of color, sex workers, the folks who get lionized as figures, right? Say in the 60s leading up to Stonewall, the people that we are asked finally, amazingly, right? To respect and to call on. And I think about like the amount of sheer knowledge, both as repertoire, as content and like savoir faire, like 
technical knowledge that it took for trans women of color to live safely, do sex work, steal hormones, administer them to one another and transition and stay alive as best they could, resist police violence, get each other out of jail, found political movements that would ripple for the rest of the century. These are some of the most brilliant, talented, smartest people to have ever walked the earth, right? And yet they exist largely as figures. And the question that is interesting about them can never possibly be, were they really women? Like, it's so absurd, right? They were galaxy braiding, you know, a long time before that meme, right? You know, they were on a whole other level. So we haven't even tapped, right, the resources of transness because trans women, especially poor trans women of color, have been at the forefront and are really, like, basically the undergirding of the entire queer world and never get half, not even 1% of the credit that they should for it, in part because everything has turned into an adversarial litigation over some abstract idea about what is and what isn't gender. Anyways, that's my answer to both questions. <laughs> I'm going to have to jump in because like, you know, Jules is just so brilliant. And I love that we deserve metaphysics, you know, on the list of things that trans women deserve, I think metaphysics is important. We need to be able to think about meaning, about the nature of things, about the nature of identity, the nature of desire, the nature of love, the nature of embodiment. These things are the things that we teach as English professors. They're the things that we think about as intellectuals. They're the things that we want our students to think about as teachers. And, you know, again, the idea that we have to begin those conversations with, well, you know, I checked my chromosomes and my chromosomes tell me this much. And then uh, having deduced what my chromosomes were, I decided to go to that. But I mean, it's like... Can we just very quickly ask, the question of metaphysics came up in the Q&A a couple of times. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, what what exactly is the, is the problem yeah. there? Or is the promise there too? Well, I mean, that, that came up for me so I can answer that. You know, I needn't be a problem, right? I think that the rhetorical technique that I'm describing is a tendency to displace a question of political organization onto one of meaning. That is to say, to take a question like, how do we provide adequate healthcare for gender non-conforming children? To be an ontological question about the nature of sexuality, the na nature of sex embodiment, the question of whether or not gender is a term with any real meaning. I've got to tell you as a sort of slight anecdote, I recently have noticed this trend of people stopping referring to gendered language and starting referring to sexed language or sexed pronouns. Adrian, you and I both have degrees in comparative literature. So we can quite easily talk about the difference between sex and gender and linguistic terms. But I think it's, it's indicative of the sort of profound and bizarre philistinism of the anti-trans movement that they seem now inclined to think that even language has a sex that is natural and preeminent over its gender. But in any case, that, for example, is a metaphysical question. What does it mean to refer to a language as gendered? That's a question that is meaningful. It is an interesting one. As someone who speaks multiple languages and thinks a lot about language, I'm super interested in that question. It does not exist on the same terrain or on the same ground as the question of how should a doctor prescribe medical treatment for a kid who's looking for an intervention on the basis of gender dysphoria. Those two questions are just like, they're not the same kind of question. And until we can learn to distinguish between them, we're going to get stuck in the circle of litigating trans women and women over and over again, which to me, as I say, is sort of the least interesting part of all of this. And also for what it's worth, I think, and this is echoing stuff that Jules said a while ago, I think the question of whether or not trans women are women is preeminently a question of concern to white trans women. That is not a question that the radical black trans women 
that Jules was talking about are invested in. I have had this on my table all day, which is to say I was earlier reading um, the documents that Jules was talking about, the testimony of Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson in the aftermath of the Stonewall riots. And it's very clear they don't have a sort of single consistent metaph metaphysical position on whether they are women. You know, not, neither the TERFs nor the trans women or women partisans are going to be able to take a single moral out of that. The meanings that they're creating are local and situational, and to use Marcus's word, fugitive. They are practices of freedom um, being experimented with and created for political purposes in an immediate short term. That's what we need. We don't need to establish more and more casuistical uh, reasoning about what to do if someone wanted to win Wimbledon by pretending to be a woman. It's, 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 it's an insult to our collective intellect. So I have very little to add um, to all this. This was phenomenal. So Grace and Jules, bravo for all the wonderfulness that you all shared. I think one of the things I'm going to latch on to, I'm just going to sidestep all the topics that you two have already talked about because I would not be able to say them much better at all. But one of the things, Adrian, you mentioned was this relationship between TERFs and just plain old transphobia or the relationship between TERFs and the, the F of TERFs. And one of the things I've sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes have come up against or have seen out there is that if we just took out the TE of TERFs, that all would be good. And I'm not so sure about that, actually. So I'm, I think for me, it's just a wariness of maybe what seems to be this growing, I don't know if I want to call it an obsession, but maybe an, an obsession with an asterisk there to validate any and all ideas and feelings that go under the heading of feminism or feminists. Uh, not because I... It's not that I, I, I want to institute one totalizing and proper definition of feminism that we all must measure up to to be deemed sufficiently feminist. But more deeply for me, in fact, it's because so what if you call yourself a feminist or if a particular action has ties to historical activism that was called feminist? That's actually insufficient to me for determining whether a discourse or action will put in radical work. And I'm, I also want to make clear that I'm using work in a way that I hope is outside of various kinds of capitalist discourses. I'm using work in the sense of W-E-R-Q that someone like Trevor Ellison talks about in the first chapter of the anthology Trapdoor. So I'm using work in that way. So, so for me, what we call ourselves is insufficient, though not of no matter, but it's insufficient because my interests, and I think that which will bring about the abolitionist and trans insurrectionist world some of us seek, depends on what your politics looks like. And I'm thinking about politics broadly defined, what your politics looks like and what kind of work you put in and how you relate to and subvert to and oppose power, as my friends and colleagues, uh, Kai M. Green and Kathy Cohen have argued. So feminist work may not look like the work of feminists past. So it becomes imperative for us, it seems to me, to move and think in between what is legible and deemed natural. It's imperative to think as the etymology and analytic heft of trans implies uh, between and across and beyond that which has sedimented as the way things have always been. The work is my focus now, not to the exclusion of naming practices, because they matter too, but if you're not putting in the work that leads to these kind of uh, abolitionist world-making aims, if you're not mobilizing discourses and bodies and histories, politics, subjectivities, in subversion of hegemonic power or in opposition to the violence of white supremacy and patriarchy and the gender binary capitalism, um, then it seems to me that that feminism is not really operating in your worldview. So for me, it's less about uh, taking out the bad stuff from 
turfism and what is left is going to be good. It's much more about how we create and cultivate and instantiate a mode of living that makes impossible the very logics that turfism rests upon. That for me is a kind of trans insurrectionist abolitionist mode of living. And that's what I'm interested in. Thank you, Marcus. That seems like a really important point. It's not the existence of this discourse that's necessarily a problem. It's what in society makes that discourse possible in the first place. That's the problem. If that's true, what I would like to ask is this. One question about these kind of preconditions for this discourse that came up in the Q&A a couple of times is the question of religion. Now, as a cis gay man, I'm used to being confronted by prejudice that comes in religious garb. Turfism, these questioners kind of point out, seems to have less to do with religion. Grace, you point to metaphysics, and that's about meaning, but it isn't about necessarily religious meaning. So is this a story that is partially about the disappearance of religion, kind of as a cudgel in attacks on LGBT rights, or do I have that wrong? Two things I was going to say that actually I'm not super sure that it's as remote as you think. Debbie Hayton, who's a prominent kind of anti-trans campaigner, is an evangelical Christian. There's something deeply Catholic about Graham Linehan's aversion to all things trans. And a lot of the language that's being used around gender ideology is either directly or indirectly taken from propaganda campaigns by evangelical churches in the U.S. and by the Catholic Church, which in 2019 put out an encyclical condemning gender ideology entitled Men and Women Who Created Them. So, you know, in fact, what I would say is that it may very well be the case that this small bubble of gender critical feminists in the middle are not themselves mostly evangelical Christians, although I think some are. But certainly out there on the alt-right fringes, there is a kind of deeply fucked up investment in evangelical critiques of gender ideology. And there's some good investigative reporting on the transnational network of U.S. And I think mostly U.S. evangelical organizations funneling money, particularly into Latin America, into other religiously organized right-wing organizations that are trying to, yeah, fund anti-trans legislative initiatives. So I think it's there, yeah. You could, could think about, for example, the kind of coalition building between supposedly left groups with feminist names. You know, I'm trying to remember the name of the supposedly revolutionary feminist group that partnered with the Heritage Foundation in order to kind of put together a panel for, I think it was CPAC last year. Um, Wolf, yeah, that's what they were called. In any case, you know, the point that's, that's important is that it's that coalition that is so unique about the turf industrial complex. It isn't that any particular individual perfectly expresses all of this. It's that almost nobody has up until right now thought to call out the rampant homophobia, aggression, violence, racism of the alt-right people with whom the gender-critical feminists have been getting into bed. So my point is that it's the alliance that's important. And it's the alliance that has been the nature of the political effect. And hopefully with that alliance beginning to fracture, we might now be able to see some meaningful reforms there. Yeah, it becomes the kind of academic discussion that it maybe should have been to begin with, right? There was a great comment in the Q&A that pointed out that really what you're all saying and what the gender critical feminists appear to be saying are two responses to the same metaphysical ambiguity, except that one side celebrates it or just accepts it, and the other side kind of freaks out about it. Grace, you were making the point earlier that what makes this fairly marginal academic position into what we're half seriously 
but I think actually increasingly seriously calling an industrial complex is the way it intersects with state power, media power, the medical establishment. One question I really wanted to get to is the role of the child in all this. Jules, I know you've written a lot about this question, and I hate to ask questions like, hey, summarize your book for us, but I do have to ask, to what extent is the transgender child central to the turf formation and to what extent is it really more of a concern in anti-trans rhetoric outside of the gender critical movement? Absolutely. I'll do my job and see if I can do my whole book in two minutes. No, I think like there's more that lurks under the surface of what might seem clear, right? Children are great targets of politics, right? Children are not even supposed to participate in our version of liberal democracy, however fallacious and idealized it is to begin with, right? Children are not meant to be citizens in the same way that adults are. But the thing that's really sort of remarkable about gender is that gender really hinges on a concept of childhood, on a concept of development. And trans medicine has, you know, like many other fields of medicine, really spent a lot of time trying to understand how it is that we become sexed and we become gendered over the course of a lifetime. So there are reasons that children are central targets that have more to do with just then just with the fact that children are often targets in political campaigns and children are often reduced to the question of the future. But I, I really have to say, like, keep your eye on this. I mean, here's the rub, right? You know, just before we had this discussion today, a federal appeals court confirmed a ruling in favor of Gavin Grimm, who had been litigating for years for the right to, to use the, the boys' restroom. He's long since graduated from high school, right? And that's wonderful. I mean, one question is to think is what happens to your childhood when your childhood is spent litigating, whether you can go to the bathroom, right? Like what kind of childhood is that where there are organized, highly funded, targeted groups of people calling for your eradication from, from the world? There are stories of trans kids run out of small towns, right? Literally run out of town under threat of violence. But that's actually the smallest slice and actually, in many ways, the most privileged narrative we have of trans childhood, right? So almost every trans child out there in the world isn't known in that particular way, has a life that lives outside of those boundaries. But trans children are the condensation point for me of all of this. One is because, really briefly, it's that old truism with a very perverse twist, women and children, right? Women and children, the two forms of people that are the least wanted out of the sort of, you know, genres of age and gender that we've created, right? So women and children are often folded in together, right? But children are also the, the target for genocidal politics, right? So the prevention of trans people's existence would in theory be most effective were it to arrest the development of trans children in childhood. The good news is like, that's not how it really works. And, you know, so many of us like skipped childhood and then became trans as adults. So, you know, we've screwed over the turfs that way. But, um, but yeah, I really think that, that children hang in the balance, children both as figures, but also real people's lives. And, you know, it's one thing to face harassment as an adult with a PhD or to face like healthcare discrimination or bullshit 
it walking down the street like I do, I I, I couldn't imagine having have had to do that as a child. Like I, I doubt I would have fared, you know, I, I doubt I would be here right now. And so, you know, that's something to think about. Not that it's so disturbing, although it is, that there's a well-funded political movement that seeks the eradication of a whole group of children, right? But that actually, that's the norm. Right. That's actually the norm to manage children that way. Right. And there are many kinds of children that don't count as children. And the best example in the United States is not trans children, but black children who have been completely excluded from the category since its invention. So I think that if you want to sort of track the leading edge of what's going on, keep an eye on not just trans women, but but trans women and children as delightfully like 19th century as that sounds. Let me actually take that to the final question, which is sort of where do you see the future going? So Grace seems to think that there might be some kind of productive breaking up of alliances going on. The question of what the future holds seems to be involved here on, on many levels. And there's, of course, also the sense that what we are getting here is an intergenerational thing, right? That in some way, what we see here are older feminists kind of freaked out by what younger feminists are getting up to. And that might be one kind of very anodyne reading of what's going on here. What is the future of this confrontation? I would love to hear from each of you a little bit as sort of a final thought. Yeah, I can, I can start. It's a great question. One I'm, I should be better at answering. But I think at least a sliver of my response to this would be that I'm a student very much of Black and trans feminists. And the future is being lived now. And I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out answer. But the future is, as Tina Camp says of the kind of Black feminist grammar, is that which is being lived now, that which is which had to have been lived now in order for the future to be possible. And if we are imagining possible futures for Black and trans people, um, or, or even for subjectivities that have not yet emerged onto the scene because the very conditions do not allow for those subjectivities, even for those subjectivities, I think the future must be lived now if there is to be some kind of hope, perhaps. But if we're thinking also about the, the typical understanding of future, I think what that might look like is going to be a very serious, perhaps even a muted, but nevertheless serious reckoning of how we want to exist in the world with one another. How are we going to be in relation to one another in ways that one can hope will be predicated on nonviolent or a non-violated ground. I mean, that's going to be very, very difficult, truly, truly difficult because we're on in battle terrain right now in terms of thinking about what it means to occupy or unoccupy how we've been scripted or unscripted in terms of gender. So that I think is going to be the terrain on which the future will be and maybe even is already beginning to be realized, um, that kind of in battle terrain of how we wish to live in relation to one another. Oh, I don't have much to add to that. I agree. I think the future will be what what we're already doing now, that there's not much more that I would want than the glimpses of a life without transphobia that I get with other trans people uh, in community and activism. Like I would just say, if only for the irreverence of it, like the future is, is T for T and it's black and brown and it doesn't have to be for everyone. It can just be for those of us who are in the know. I feel a tremendous degree of pride in being trans right now, which is something that I often feel when I read or talk with Marquis uh, and Jules. I think one of the things that is saddest about the turf industrial complex and the way it monopolizes 
so much attention in relation to trans people is that it occludes the degree to which, as Marquis says, the future is here and we're living it. And, you know, our lives don't depend on the opinion of some property British ladies in their 50s who are worried about their daughter's haircuts. You know, I am, I am not in the least interested in that. And I'm, and I'm so grateful for the work that my colleagues and comrades are doing. Since this is the last question, I think one of the things that would be worth just putting on the record before we all go is that during this whole event, the question and answer box has been spammed pretty consistently by Turks and gender critical feminists and trolls. I say trolls solely because the accounts are anonymous, offering unhelpful and in some cases pretty offensive confrontations of the participants. You know, I think whatever optimism I have about my community and my activism with trans people, I'm always just struck by the kind of leaden pedantry of what is a lesbian if men can be women, etc. There are so many of these, of just these boring one-line questions. Will you comment on Karen White? Well, I think she's a very, very bad person. It's very, very easy to answer these questions. Get real, have a real conversation. And, you know, maybe you can see the future too, because it's much more interesting than this fucking nonsense. Well, I want to thank all three of you for being here and for making this just a massively energizing and exciting hour of discussion. And I agree with the three of you that the future of this field is bright and that the future may already be here. I mean, looking at you three amazing scholars, I feel like it certainly feels right. I'm incredibly grateful that I was allowed to pick your brain on this important issue. And yeah, if you were one of those people in the Q&A tab who had rehearsed these kind of canned questions that, you know, I'm not even in this field and I'd heard them all before, get new material, get out there, talk to people. You might be surprised by what you find. But in any case, I want to thank each and every one of you for being here today. Bye-bye. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dodd and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crosley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The podfather is Arlenir Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. Mm-hmm.